0: Set the captives free. (laughs) We studied that in Sunday school as well. (laughs) Praise the Lord. There's a good little spiritual army heading back for Children's Church. You can go ahead and be seated this morning. Um, Reason being, I've got a long sermon and a long passage to read, so we're not going to read. I'll read it in paragraphs and break it down as we go. So um, we've prayed a lot this morning, and rightly so. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Uh, we started Sunday school with a lot of prayer requests, we prayed several times, and I ask you now, just in your hearts, to be praying um, for God to open our hearts and understanding to this word that we're going to share this morning. Um, So today, we're going to discuss Paul's doctrine of election in the book of Romans. In Sunday school this morning, Rick and another gentleman were having a dialogue on what's really important, Uh, because this passage historically has been a divisive passage for the Christian church. And it doesn't need to be. We can disagree, and we can still love each other. As long as we're anchored on the the gospel, the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and that we are saved by grace alone, and it's our faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to differ on the rapture's timing. We can differ on even our interpretation of the millennial reign, those are secondary issues. We can we can differ on the way we see salvation in the sense that, that God effectually draws or that God draws all people and still be loving and accepting one another because we love the same Savior. The hymns that we sang this morning, the songs that we sang, really those are the things that we agree on, that... Jesus paid it all. We all agree that I owe him everything. We all agree that our sin was as black as black could be and that we can come together and reason together, Saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they are as white as snow. They'll be red like crimson. They can be as wool. And so this passage, we can, ex- we can respect each other. I've got brothers that I really, really respect, that I love, and we differ completely on our interpretation of Romans chapter 9, but we fellowship together, we pray together, we witness together, and so this doesn't need to be a divisive passage at all. We can appreciate each other's differences and we can learn from each other's differences and understand that those that I disagree with, they have a very, very high view of Scripture. They believe in the inerrancy, the complete sufficiency of the Word of God. So we agree with that. We just have a different interpretation of what Paul's meaning was in Romans chapter 9. Now some would take this passage, this chapter, and see that God has sovereignly chose some for salvation before they were ever born, and God has sovereignly chose some for reprobation before they were ever born. And they would go on to interpret this passage to say, what right do we have as clay to talk back to God? And and that is a a possible interpretation of this passage. But I, I sincerely believe that Paul is not addressing that question. I sincerely believe that Paul is addressing the question of God's provision for all people And God's hardening, temporarily, and blinding Israel, not for their exclusion, but for the inclusion of Gentiles. And that's my understanding of this passage, and so that's the way I'm going to present it to you this morning. And I want to share with you this perspective, and I think you'll find it challenging if you've never heard this side of the argument before. Now, I had a professor that once said that if you hear something new, it probably isn't true. And so I might be presenting something new, but it's not new in the sense that the church has never taught this. The early church fathers taught this. Clement of Rome writes his exposition on this chapter, how God is now broadening, not narrowing, the scope of salvation. So there's many other scholars today... That presently would side with this interpretation. And there's many, many great Bible scholars and wonderful expositors and Bible teachers that would take a more Calvinistic approach to this passage. But I want you just to be patient with me. If you don't agree with me, I still love you, and I hope you still love me after this morning, and you might not agree with me. Uh, But as a result of Reformed theology, most of us have Come to look at this passage with the glasses on of that God's choosing certain ones for salvation. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So we're going to look at that passage in the context of the entire letter of the book of Romans and try to explain from my position what that means. Uh, in my opinion, uh, theology doesn't need to proceed exposition. Exposition needs to be done first and our theology taken from that secondly. And I think we would all agree with that. So with all that said, let's just start with the letter of Romans in general. Earlier in this letter, Paul addressed the question, what does it profit being a Jew? What profit is there being a Jew if no one can live up to God's demand. So what does it profit being a Jew? In essence, Jewish people before God were no different than the Gentiles. And Paul discusses that in Romans 2, 17, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 21. A long discussion on that. He says that although being Jewish has wonderful advantages because the Jew had the oracles of God given to them as a nation. Nevertheless, being Jewish gives you no automatic claim to salvation. Instead, Paul asserts a radical and shocking claim. Let me quote to you from Romans 2, 28-29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is the circumcision that which is outwardly of the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not the letter. Paul held that no human being will be justified in the sight of God by the law. Romans 3.19 says this, For the law was given to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul went on to say in Romans 3.29 that no man is justified by the law, but only by faith apart from good works. That includes Gentiles as well as Jews. Then he goes on to ask a rhetorical question. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yea, indeed, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Romans 3.29 and 30. This lines up perfectly with Paul's concluding remarks. So we've got to see this chapter and the two bookends of this chapter to really, I think, to appreciate Paul's point. He starts out with one bookend, saying, It is my heart's desire, my brokenness. I would do anything for my kinsmen according to the flesh that they might be saved. So Paul is holding out great hope for those who are not a part of the elect. He's praying for their salvation. And at the other end of the chapter, he ends it with these words. The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, on the other hand, which followed after the law of righteousness, have not attained unto the law of righteousness. And here he answers the question, why? And he doesn't answer it saying that God never intended to save them before they were born. He answers it with this. Why? Because they sought it not by faith but rather by the works of the law. We must put ourselves, when we come to the Bible, in the mindset of the first century reader. Paul is writing to his Jewish contemporaries who saw Gentiles as dogs. That's the way they viewed the Gentile nations. These dogs now have faith in Christ, and they actually may be more Jewish then Jews are. They may be grafted into the true olive branch, while Jews who are the true olive branches might be broken off. That was radical for them to think this way. And so a Jewish person is thinking, has the promises of God to his nation failed? If so many Jewish people aren't getting saved, And now Gentiles are embracing this. Has God's promise to Israel failed? That, I believe, is the question being answered in this chapter. Paul supports his theology by an example from none other than Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. He says this about Abraham. He explains and declares that Abraham was righteous 15 years prior to circumcision. Why did he say that? In order that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That means Gentiles. And who thus have righteousness imputed to them, and in the same way, likewise, the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised. It has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with obeying the commandments. It has nothing to do with the law. That's what his his point is. They follow the example of the faith of our father Abraham, who was justified yet being uncircumcised. This, in the first century Jew, was a radical teaching and it was coming from a man who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Furthermore, Paul begins chapter 9 by expressing his profound sorrow and pain for his kinsmen according to the flesh. They have missed out on the salvation, and they have rejected their own Messiah. But he says it's not as though the word of God has failed in Romans 9.6. Rather, as we've already seen, not those who are descendants from Israel actually belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham because they are physical descendants, Romans 9, 6, and 7. Being ethnically Jewish is not what salvation is about. Being a child of promise by faith. This includes Gentiles, and it actually can exclude Jewish people. The problematic that Paul is wrestling with is how does God choose people? The Jew could fail to obtain the promise of salvation while Gentiles, who were regarded by the Jews as unclean and abominable, could actually find salvation instead? Paul answers this, that God is sovereign. That we can all agree about in this chapter, that God is absolutely sovereign. Let me give you the short definition of what sovereign means. It means God has the right to do what he chooses to do. It does not mean meticulous determinism, however. That's not what sovereign means. Sovereign simply means that God can do whatever he chooses to do. And if God chooses to save Gentiles and grant them mercy, who are we to talk back to God? If God decides to harden whoever he decides to harden, who are we to talk back to God? Now God has a purpose and he tells us who he mercies, and God tells us who he hardens. So let's try to understand that as well. With all that said, God is infinite in his wisdom. He has the free to do freedom to do whatever he does as unpleasant as as it may seem to the Jewish people. And no one has the right to complain that God is unjust. He can harden people, and he can harden rebellious Israel if he chooses to, just as he hardened a rebellious Pharaoh. So the question, up for debate, is who is it that God has chosen to save? The answer is this, and I think we all can agree with this, that according to the book of Romans... It's those who have faith in Christ. That almost seems too simple, doesn't it? As Paul writes in Galatians, which is sort of a reader's digest of the book of Romans, so you see that it is men of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.7. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. God has sovereignly chosen to save all that those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can go on to say in Romans chapter 10, listen to this carefully, there is no distinction, no difference between Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's my opinion That God's provision for all mankind, that God desires all to repent and come knowledge of the truth, best fits this interpretation of Romans chapter 9. Paul's objective in Romans 9 is not to narrow the scope of God's election, but to actually broaden it. He wants to take in all who have faith in Christ, regardless of their ethnicity, Election then, and my understanding, is first and foremost corporate. God had a corporate people in the Old Testament. And God has a corporate people, the body of Christ, in the New Testament. And what God has done in the book of Ephesians is very clear, that he has torn down that middle wall of separation, thus making one new man in Christ Jesus The phrase, in Christ Jesus, in the book of Ephesians, is repeated over and over and over again because election is Christocentric. Those who have faith in Christ are incorporated into the elect one, Isaiah chapter 42, that Jesus is the elect one. He is the chosen one. So it's corporate, it's Christocentric, and it's conditioned on faith. And let me remind you today that faith is not a work. When I tell people that I believe in Christ, they often accuse me, oh, you believe in works salvation then. Those two things are diametrically opposed. Read the book of Galatians. Faith and works are antithetical. They are opposite from each other. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul writes this, therefore it is of faith that it might be, by grace. Romans 4.16. In other words, grace necessitates that salvation must be by faith. So it's up to us, and we are genuinely accountable to respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction. I would never believe that man can just come to Christ on his own initiative. People have accused me of that, and that's never we're taught in the Bible. We must be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of the gospel that brings us to salvation, and it's God's sent Messiah to save the lost that brings us to Christ. So first of all, let's just read um, 6 through 13, and then we'll make uh, several remarks about this section of Scripture. But it's not as if the Word of God has taken no effect. Other translations, the ESV says it's not that the word of God has failed. Now, what, is he, what question is he answering there? It's not that the word of God has failed. He is praying for who? He's praying for Israel. He's praying for his kinsmen. His sorrow and his brokenness is for Israel. We can't miss that point. And then he says, but it's not that, the, that God's word, his message, has failed. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. They are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac... For the children not yet being born, nor having done good or evil, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. And that's the verse that really we wrestle with. Having done neither good nor bad. Having not yet been born. So that the purpose of election might stand. So we can ask ourselves, what is the purpose of election? What is he talking about in Romans chapter 9? The purpose of election is so that the world might be saved through the message of Israel and through their Messiah. Or is it that God chooses some for heaven and chooses some for hell? The context, I believe, supports the former. That God's purpose of election is not going to fail. And God has the right to choose who the messengers will be. God has the right to choose who is going to be in the line of the Messiah. It's not going to be Ishmael, it's going to be Isaac, it's not going to be Esau, it's going to be Jacob. Abraham was to trust God by promise alone not by the works of his flesh. Esau represents the older son, not by logic, not by works. So this is what God is doing. And he's telling specifically the Jewish people, you cannot trust in your ethnicity. You cannot trust in Abraham's being a descendant of him. You cannot trust in your circumcision. You cannot trust in being one who observes the law. That's what I think he's trying to get across to them. Why? Because Jacob and Esau had the exact same mama, and they had the exact same daddy, and yet some of them can be excluded, the exact same descendants. And so, what is God getting across here? He says, It said, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, is that a reference to Jacob and Esau particularly, or is that a reference to two different nations? It's a promise that God kept with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Jacob fulfills the purpose in election. Not individual salvation, but God's purpose in choosing the nation of Israel. It has not failed. The faithfulness, listen to this, the faithfulness of God's promise, it does not depend on the faithfulness of his descendants. Neither one, Jacob or Esau, had anything good in them. So it's God's promises that keeps the covenant alive. It had nothing to do with how good and how faithful the descendants were. God's word has not failed. God's promise to bring the message and the Messiah through Isaac and Jacob. That's his point. In fact, Ishmael and Esau, they both received tremendous blessings. It wasn't like these guys were excluded from blessing at all. Let me read to you what Abraham said in the reply from God. When God told him that you're going to have a son, he says, oh, please God, just let Eliezer be the heir. Let Ishmael be the heir. Anything. I don't have a kid. And listen to what God said to him. Genesis 17, 20. As for your son Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. The man wasn't a reprobate from birth. No, he said, I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him Greatly, He will be a father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. That's for Isaac. But Isaac was not to carry the covenant. I'm sorry, I got all that backwards. <laughs> Ishmael was not to carry the covenant. Well you're saying, man, you are a radical pastor. <laughs> okay, I got it right. Got these names right. So let me finish the last sentence. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear. In fact, when the Israelites were crossing into the promised land, the Israelite nation was under a ban not to even touch the land of Esau because that territory had been given to them as a possession. Whatever they needed from the Edomites, they were commanded to pay it, for, pay it in full. Deuteronomy 2, 4-6. God's choice is not based on human wisdom. In fact, just the opposite. God chooses the foolish things to confine the mighty. God chooses the weak things over the things that are strong. God chooses the base things, the things that are not, so that He can confound the things that are mighty and bring them to nothing. Why? So that no flesh should glory in His sight. 1 Corinthians 1.29 the purpose for the nations and their destinies have not failed. This quote from Malachi 1, 1 through 1-5, is not about individuals, but it's about the nations of Israel. Israel, I have blessed. I love Jacob. In fact, the words love and hate in the Bible are often used figuratively to express a special purpose in that one that you love. In fact, we're told in Luke's gospel that we are to hate our parents unless we do that, we can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So God is not talking about literal hatred here. He is saying that there is one special purpose that I have for you, Jacob. And the Edomites, you're not going to carry out that special purpose of carrying God's message to the world and bringing the Messiah to the world. God blesses those whom Israel is blessed by. And he curses those who stand in opposition to the calling of God. That's the example of Esau. Anybody who stands in opposition to God's calling and his people, you have set yourself against God. Even modern day Israelites that Paul is writing to You could just as well be a descendant of Esau if you are opposing your own Messiah. That's his emphasis here. The Edomites had forsaken their brotherly covenant with Israel. They pursued Israel with a sword. They cast off all pity. Their anger did tear perpetually. And they kept his wrath forever. Amos one. 9 through 11. So even the descendants of Abraham, remember Esau is a direct descendant from Abraham, a direct descendant from Rebekah and Isaac. So even God's descendants, even his chosen people, can be cursed if they oppose the purpose of election that God chose Israel. So let's go now to our next question, 14 through 18. Is God not unjust somehow? What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Here's the result. So then it is not the man or him who wills or him who runs, but God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, this very purpose, I have raised you up in order that I might show in you my name and declare it among all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and whoever he wills to harden, he will harden. So God is going to do two things with the nation of Israel to ensure his purpose in electing Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, that all the world would be blessed. God will do two things. God will do whatever it takes to ensure that that promise will not fail. If it means showing mercy to people who don't deserve mercy so that the purposes of God's choosing Israel will continue, God will have the right to do that. This is a quote from Exodus chapter 32 and 33. The story is the worshiping of the golden calf. They were idol worshipers. They deserved no mercy at all. And what does Moses do? He is a type of Christ. He pleads and he intercedes and he humbles himself. Because you know what God wanted to do? He wanted to wipe out the whole nation. And what did Moses say? God, what will happen if you do that? All the nations will hear, and they will think our God was not able to bring them into the land. Oh, God, please show mercy. And God can show mercy when he wants to show mercy in order that his promises to Israel will not fail. And then God says this. He says, I will harden whoever I want to harden. If you oppose me, If you stand against the will of God and you reject truth, you can be hardened. So let me just kind of walk through some of the things that Pharaoh did, and we can compare them with Israel of Paul's day. First of all, Pharaoh was self-hardened before God hardened him. Five times we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God then hardened Pharaoh's heart in judgment. And why did he do it? He did it to ensure that all the nations of the earth would know the one true God of Abraham. God judicially hardened Pharaoh over and over again to ensure the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, who was going to prefigure Jesus. Now, let's look at the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had rejected the revelation of Jesus Christ the exact same way that Pharaoh did. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Teaching after teaching after teaching. And they continued to reject. John 9, 41, when the blind man was was healed, and they have a picture of salvation right before them. And they look at that blind man, and they says, who are you to teach us? You were born completely in sin. And all he says is, all I know is this, that once I was blind, but now I can see. And they says, give God the glory. We know this man's a sinner. These hard, stiff-necked Israelites refused, and it, Jesus said this at the end of this discourse. He said, if you were blind, speaking to the national leaders of, the, of this country, the religious leaders, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains self-hardening. Romans, I mean, uh, John 12, 37. But although Jesus had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. John 15, 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. This is just like Pharaoh. They saw miracle after miracle and self-rejected the truth. So what did God do? Same thing he did to Pharaoh. He hardened their heart in judgment. And he did it in order to ensure that his promise that God would save the world through Abraham, would be complete, just like he did with Pharaoh. And I, Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And the only way he could get them to do that, they had rejected truth, so he hardened them, he taught taught them in parables, he blinded their eyes, he kept the messianic secret from them, so that they would nail him to the cross, lift him up, in order that the promise that God made to Abraham would succeed. Those are judicially hardened, have grown calloused in their own rebellion, and then they are cut off. Acts 28, 27. The natural branches, which is Israel, they were cut off, not because they were cut off before they were born. They were cut off because of their unbelief. Romans eleven twenty they were broken off why in order that gentiles might be grafted in Romans 11:17 now paul's hope and prayer for israel is that they will be grafted back in that makes absolutely no sense if they were predestined to be cut off permanently this is what he says in Romans 11:23 if they do not continue in unbelief for God is able to graft them in again, Romans eleven twenty three. 23. So, with that all said, let's go to 19 through 25. My question here is, why does God find fault? Why does God find fault? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Israel, the one clump of clay, the children, Jacob and Esau, one of them opposed and resisted God. One of them surrendered and submitted to the will of God. And God, doesn't he have the right to take those clay then from that one same lump and do with what he chooses? He absolutely does. Now, I'm going to do a cross-reference here in just a second. But I want to sh- just say this, first of all. As sovereign of the universe, what if Israel's unbelief furthers God's purposes, because that's what they're saying. See, God, if, if, our, if our unbelief and our rejection of our own Messiah just furthers your own purposes, then, then why are you blaming us? You should, you should be glad that we're doing this. Now, this is a self-hardened, carnal man who's coming up with these arguments. Let's remember that. So what else did they say? This is really a repeat of Romans 3, 3 through 5. What if Israel's unbelief? That just furthers God's purpose. They, they actually said, "Well, let's just do evil so that good can come from it." God hardened Israel and sent them a spirit of stupor. We're told in Romans eleven eighteen. I'm sorry, Romans eleven eight. Why did God send Israel a spirit of stupor? It's because they had hardened themselves. Listen to Luke seven verse thirty, talking again to the religious leaders. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Acts 13, 46. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you Jewish people, and since you thrust it aside, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. It's the exact same thing that Saul did in the Old Testament. Saul had rejected... The word of the Lord. The Lord then said, I have rejected you from being king over Israel. This is nothing but a man-made argument coming from people who are grown callous in their rebellion. The context of this question is what about hardened Israel? That's what the, the point is. The current question is God fair. I'm going to kind of summarize a story that I think every Jewish mind was going to when they read this passage about the potter. I think every Jewish mind would have gone to Jeremiah chapter 18. Go down to the potter's house. He's putting something on the wheel. He's going to fashion it. The clay is marred in his hand. Let me just kind of read uh, that for you here, this analogy. He went down to the potter's house. Behold, he wrought on the work with the wheels. And the wheel, uh, the vessel that he made in his clay, out of clay was marred in his hand, And the potter said, I will make it again into another vessel, as seems good to me to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, O house of Israel, can I I not do with you as this potter did, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant. If I am telling Israel, you are my vessel, and I'm going to mold you, I'm going to build you, I'm going to plant you, I'm going to bless you, listen to what he says. If that nation does evil in my sight, and it does not obey my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I would have benefited them. So what God is using here in this Potter analogy, if the nation of Israel rebels and self-hardens, if my purposes are going to be completed, I have the right to choose to harden that clay because they were already rebellious toward me. God desires to display both his wrath and his mercy. So let's look at this passage here. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That is the nation of Israel. God was so long-suffering. God was so patient with them. And he prepared them for destruction because they continually rebelled against him. And remind ourselves this, that we, when we were born, we were children of wrath even as others. So God is patient. It's the long-suffering of God that brings salvation, Paul reminds, over and over again. He says that he was an example of God's long-suffering and patience, a vessel that was fitted for destruction. That was Israel in their rebellion. This was the course of their history. Stephen said this in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you also. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? They have slain them which have showed before you the coming of the just one, whom you are now the betrayers and murderers. God had a greater redemptive plan even when those who rejected him. The vessels of honor are those Jewish people who are taking the gospel to the world. The vessels of dishonor are the Jews who in their rebellion are standing against the promises of God so that the good news might be taken to all the Gentiles. God does all of this to fulfill His promise of mercy for all people. Romans 11.30, this is the conclusion of this whole section. Listen to this. For as you in time past have not believed, that's talking about the Gentiles. You, in time past, have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy. Gentile people, how did they obtain mercy? Through their unbelief. Through the Jews' unbelief. Let me go on to read, if I can find my place. Even so, Have these also now not believed? Jews. Here's why. That through your mercy, the Gentiles, they also may obtain mercy. The Jews, the ones who are standing against the promises of God. He wants to show them mercy. In fact, Paul says, I want to provoke them to jealousy. I want them to see that Gentiles are getting in the covenant that God gave to Abraham. I want them to see that the Gentiles are receiving all the blessings that were meant for my people, and you guys are missing out, and I want to make you jealous so that you will want your own Messiah. That's the whole point that Paul's trying to get across here. For God has concluded them all, universally, all in unbelief, and here's the purpose, that he might have mercy upon all. Yes, God prepared beforehand his church both Jew and Gentile, as the prophets have foretold. Now, I'm going to have to end right here, but I'm just going to read what Hosea said. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call Gentiles my people. I'm broadening, I'm widening the scope of salvation. And my beloved who are not my beloved. And, I shall co- and it shall come to pass in the ple- place that it was said to them, you are not my people, Gentiles. They shall be called the sons of the living God. So what are some things that we can take away from this? One, the potter can choose with Israel to bring the message of hope to the world, if that's what God wants to do. He can also choose the messengers who are going to be his agents, whether it's Isaac or whether it's Jacob or whether it's Saul of Tarsus. God can do that. Just being from the right family, being in the right environment, saves no one. We have to depend not on willing or running. I really didn't talk about that verse a whole lot. It's not him who wills. That is the one who has the desire. You remember what Abraham did? He desired and he willed for Eliezer to be the heir. He was running. It's not him who runs. He was trying to run and do it in his own strength so that he took Hagar and had Ishmael. No, it's not Eliezer, not through your willing it, not through your running, not through your self-effort, but we've all got to come to the place where we humble ourselves and we ask Jesus Christ in faith alone to have mercy on us. We can't depend on anything else. God calls us to respond in faith alone to the gospel. Those who are temporarily hardened and blinded because they are calloused hearts, God can even use them to take the gospel to those who are willing to hear it. God holds out hope and long suffers with those who have rejected the invitation of salvation. I'll close with this, Second Peter 3.15. And on account of his long suffering of our Lord, we count it salvation. Even as our beloved brother Paul wrote according to the wisdom given to him, He has written to you. So I I hope this challenges you today. I hope it helps you understand a different perspective. If I haven't persuaded you, that's fine. I still love you and you still, hopefully still love me. But I hope that it lets you know that there is a biblical support and biblical reasons to have a different view on Romans chapter 9 than the traditional view or what maybe most of your study Bibles will, will read. One of my favorite study Bibles, I'll close with this, is the Holman Study Bible. And I was reading the notes in it. And the notes went on to say this, that God is just if he chooses to elect somebody before they were born for heaven, and God is still just if he elects to choose someone for damnation before they're ever born. Who are we to say anything? And then he gave an illustration. And his illustration was this. If you decide to give money, to a beggar that's on the street corner, you're pulling out of McDonald's, and you decide to do that, you have the right to do that. And if you go into another store and there's somebody panhandling there and you choose to not to give them the money, you're just in just, just to do that. And I got to thinking about that illustration. I sat down and I thought, wait a minute, that illustration has some flaws in it. Because if we're going to use that illustration, we would have to say, first of all, that you decided that that person was going to be a beggar before he was ever born. Then you would also have to say that you decided that that person could never hear you if you told them, I've got a job for you and you can come to work for me. But you decided they couldn't hear that. And then you would have to also say that you would be just and then punishing them because they didn't respond to the offer for work, but they couldn't hear you. You would have to judge them for being a beggar, but yet you chose them to make a beggar before they were ever born. You see what I'm saying? That would be the illustration that would really reflect that position. So even in their arguments, we can find flaws, and I'm sure you can find flaws in my arguments today as well. But let's, as a church, decide this, that we will graciously love one another, and when we get to heaven... The former things will be remembered no more and we will be worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords who saved us because we put faith in the Lamb, Jesus Christ alone. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you, that God, that your word is challenging, God, because it stretches us. God, thank you that we have brothers and sisters that we differ with, Because, God, if we were all stamped out of the same mold, all had the exact same opinions, God, we wouldn't need Jesus. We wouldn't need grace. We wouldn't need to give each other space to grow and learn. And thank you, God, most of all, that you've been so patient with me. God, over the years, I've struggled. I've gone back and forth on these issues. And yet, God, you and your goodness and your kindness have been teaching me, have been leading me. And I pray today, God, that we would be encouraged just by the truths that we do all agree on. That God, that you are sovereign and that your promises will never fail. And God, even people that seem to be beyond hope, that are broken off, God, if they will not remain in their unbelief, God, we know that you are able to graft them in again. So God, let us agree on those things for your glory and love one and each other the way that God loves and accepts us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.